Hi, it's Ethan from Muncie, Indiana. It's the day before school gets back into session, and I enter my fifth year of teaching U.S. government. It's been a wild ride. You're listening to the NPR Politics Podcast, which was recorded at... It is 1238 Eastern on on Friday, August 6th. Things may have changed by the time you listen to this podcast, but I'll have a class full of students eager to make this year as normal as possible. Enjoy the show. Asma, a fellow Indianan. I gasped because the the timestamp is from Indiana. Thank you. You need to correct me. I was trolling you with Indiana, and I don't want the internet to yell at me for saying that. <laughs> a fellow Hoosier. Thank you for submitting that timestamp. It's so wonderful to hear from my fellow Hoosiers. Hey there. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the White House. I'm Asma Khalid. I also cover the White House. And our old friend, Scott Horsley, who also used to cover the White House, covers the economy these days, is joining us today. Hey, Scott. Great to be with you all. And Scott's here because it's a jobs report day. 943,000 new jobs in July. The unemployment rate fell from 5.9% to a pandemic-era low of 5.4%. Scott Horsley, you used to be in the White House like us. These days you cover the economy, and you know now you're, you're doing stories from bars and restaurants. Life, life must be hard for you, Scott Horsley. <laughs> Not a lot of field work, although I did spend some time in the craft beer tent while we were bicycling across Iowa last week. Uh, but you know, with the reason we've been paying a lot of attention to bars and restaurants, they were obviously very hard hit during the pandemic. And in recent months, they have been staffing up quickly, although not as quickly as a lot of bar and restaurant owners would like. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got uh, news of uh, the July jobs numbers this morning from the Labor Department. And once again, uh, bars and restaurants were near the top of the list. They added uh, 253,000 jobs last month. Asma, you and I just had a conversation yesterday about your reporting on how on how the White House is trying to handle the you know some of the weirdness of this economy, which we're going to talk more about today. How did President Biden respond to this jobs report, which you know most people said was better than expected? Sure, I mean it is an objectively solid jobs report, but you know candidly, I was struck by listening to his remarks how non-celebratory it sounded. I, I mean, there was actually a point where I think he himself kind of acknowledged that this isn't a moment to celebrate. He says, you know, it's an indication of how much hard work there is still to do, and and so much of what he was talking about today focused on the vaccine, uh, steps that need to be taken to ensure that the economy you know, stays on track, and and just the importance of essentially combating the spread of the Delta variant. My message today is not one of celebration. It's one to remind us we got a lot of hard work left to be done, both to beat the Delta variant and to continue our advance of economic recovery. We all know it's what it starts with. As I said again and again, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So we have to get more people vaccinated. I mean, Scott, this is such a weird economy, right? Because, you know, this jobs report is a good example. It comes out, it's strong, but we're already saying, well, wait a second, this data in it, was this before Delta? How much does Delta change things? It's like, these are usually things that move so glacially, and now they're all at the whims of this virus that keeps rapidly changing. I mean, how, 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 hard, is, how hard does that make it to understand what's going on? It, it is a challenge. You know, it, this was a very strong report, 943,000 jobs added overall in the month of July. Uh, the jobs numbers for May and June were also revised upwards. The general trend line there shows uh, a job market that's accelerating, more people going back to work, and that's, that's good to see. 
That said, uh, these numbers were gathered in the early part of July, and that's before the really big spike in new coronavirus infections. Uh, As we've said all along, the path of the economy depends on the path of the virus. It's possible that as those infection rates keep climbing, uh, some people may be more reluctant to go out to eat, go out to uh, to in-person entertainment, uh, might be less willing to travel. So that could reduce the the, the demand uh, side of the economy. And also uh, some of the people who've been on the sidelines worried about uh, the pandemic or who've been preoccupied with uh, looking after their kids, uh, they, they might be uh, slower to go back to work. You know, it could affect the reopening of schools. It could affect yeah. people's willingness to go back to work. So it, it, the 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 big question mark is how much the the delta surge will will interfere with this comeback. And, and Scott, you've been talking to to restaurant owners about this very problem. Uh, you know, having a hard time filling open jobs. What have they been telling you? Yeah, what's happened in 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 the restaurant industry in particular, and and in other parts of the economy as well, is demand has come back more quickly than the labor to meet that demand. Uh, restaurants are are crowded. They've got lots of customers, but they don't necessarily have the cooks and the servers and the dishwashers to to serve all those customers. And as a result, some have had to cut back their hours or uh, close some days of the week. Uh, I talked with Liz Valeni, who owns a couple of restaurants in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, she's only able to operate five days a week right now, just because she doesn't have enough staff. Not everybody wanted to come back to this industry. So people that have been in this industry for five, ten, fifteen years. Um, made the decision not to come back to hospitality. They've moved on to other other areas of career path. Valeni and other restaurant owners have been raising wages and offering other benefits to uh, to try to entice more people to come back. Uh, wages in the in the larger hospitality industry are up uh, 9.6% over the last year. That's more than double the wage gains we've seen throughout the private sector. So uh, they are paying more. Of course, restaurants and bars still tend to be a pretty pretty low-wage environment. And I've talked to uh, you know a lot of workers who've just said, uh, I, I don't want to go back to that environment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe think of a, another way to make a living. I mean, it feels like so much of what this White House keeps saying is that it's really hard to talk about the economy without talking about the virus. And that's it felt like so much of what we heard again from President Biden today. I mean, this was a jobs report day. uh, And I feel like on days like this, you expect the president to come out and give a speech that's very tailored to the economy. And it feels like so much of what we keep hearing from him and what we heard from him today was about the perils of remaining unvaccinated. Today, about 400 people will die because of the Delta variant in this country. A tragedy, because virtually all of these deaths were preventable if people had gotten vaccinated. All right, well, uh, Asma, Scott, it was great to talk to both of you. Always good to be with y'all. You, you, are, you are both being kicked out of the podcast at this point in time, but I think one of you might come back for Camp Let I'm it go. coming we'll, back. We'll figure I'm that coming out. Back. <laughs> You've decided that already. <laughs> I guess that, that, that's settled then. We'll talk to you in a few minutes. But first, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to come back and we are going to focus in on what this Delta pandemic looks like in two wildly different political places, Florida and New York City. NPR's Planet Money Summer School is now in session. Everything you want to know about investing from expert guest professors. New classes every Wednesday till Labor Day in the Planet Money podcast feed. And we are back. And 
As you know, COVID cases are rising basically everywhere in the United States. Today, uh, back to the 100,000 new cases uh, daily total milestone that we thought we had left far behind. We've talked so much about how as the pandemic has gone on, it's become, you know, a lot of local pandemics, really, all playing out differently based on vaccination rates, political climates, who's in charge, things like that. So now we're going to contrast what Delta looks like in two very different places, at least politically. Uh, NPR's Greg Allen and Jasmine Gars are here. Hey, both of you. Hello. Hi. So, Greg, you're covering Florida. What is COVID looking like in Florida right now? Well, right now, Florida is at the middle of this resurgence of uh, the COVID from the Delta variant. Uh, We're responsible for something like one out of every five cases nationally right now. It's a surge that started about five, six weeks ago. Hospitals think that it might be going to peak in the next couple of weeks and it'll start to come down from there. But meanwhile, our governor, Republican Ron DeSantis, is saying that this is really just a seasonal spike, something that that will go away in a few weeks and we shouldn't be overly concerned about. He hasn't issued a, a state of emergency as he did with the, with the first resurgence. And so hospitals are, in some parts of the state, are actually getting full. But he's saying that things are fine. And uh, so there's kind of a tale of, of two COVIDs going on right now, uh, one from the state response and one from what's, what we actually are seeing at the hospitals and at the local level. All right, so so we're going to get back to to that that response from Governor DeSantis in a bit, but but first, Jasmine, you're you're covering New York City. What does it look like there? Well, we are seeing a rise in COVID cases, and and officials are really concerned about the Delta variant, and there's a lot of concern about the the amount of unvaccinated people. I mean, it varies a lot depending on communities here, but in some communities, like you know, among Black New Yorkers. Uh, the the vaccination percentage is around 30 percent. Wow. Um, it's also quite low for uh, Latinos and immigrant communities. And so there is a lot of concern. I mean, we are not at, you know, levels like we were last winter, but it's it's going up and there's there's plenty of concern about this. So there's like been this two pronged effort, get more people vaccinated and like start with the mask uh, and some some mandates to curb the spread. The mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, he's a Democrat. Before Delta really came onto the scene, he was doing this like pandemic victory lap, wearing goofy outfits and playing cornhole and volleyball seemingly in every park in New York City. <laughs> but but he's really shifted his tone now and, and he's taking some drastic steps. Yeah, this week uh, there was a mandate came down that if, if you want to go to a bar, to a restaurant, to a gym here in New York, you're going to have to show proof of vaccination. And that's for everyone. Like, even if you're not a resident, you're visiting from out of town, you have to show proof of vaccination. Uh, that can either be the Excelsior Pass, which is an app, or the CDC card that you get. And it's proof of one dose that you have to show. This is what's going to turn the tide. And we also know that people are going to get a really clear message. If you want to participate in our society fully, you got to get vaccinated. you got to get vaccinated. It's time. What it's going to look like right now on the ground, there's a lot of questions about that, what this mandate is going to look like. Reactions-wise, you know, there's been some pushback. Like, you know, there was a councilman from Staten Island, uh, which is a little more conservative, um, who said that this was going to create, you know, a a secondary class and that this was discriminatory. I got to say, for the most part, the, the feeling I get from New Yorkers I'm speaking to is 
we're really tired. New Yorkers cannot relive 2020, not financially, not physically, not emotionally. Um, And so if this is what it takes, so be it. I mean, Greg, I feel like exhaustion with COVID protocols stretches partisan divides, right? But um, Come down to Florida, because there's no protocols down here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what I was getting at, the the what is wildly different is is how public officials are handling this and Ron DeSantis has become kind of the cutting edge of Republican governors saying nope we're done with this and that's despite the fact that what Florida is 20% of all national cases lately right and you know it's illegal for a business to require a customer to show a, a vaccination card here he he made that illegal uh, emergency order and then the legislature passed a bill to put it into the law so yeah, I mean, and he he dropped all restrictions on businesses related to COVID last fall. Counties that want to do things like impose mask mandates can no longer do it in Florida because of, of laws that have been passed. And, and let's just really emphasize that he is not not putting mandates in place. He is actively saying local mandates are not allowed. Counties and cities are not allowed to say you have to wear a mask. Right, exactly so. And and the, the, the latest thing has to do with school districts. Of course, schools are starting next week in some districts here. And the school boards are uh, in places like Jacksonville, which leads the state in the number of cases. There you've got some hospitals sort of that are actually full. Um, they, the school board wanted to impose a mask mandate following the CDC's uh, guidance. You know, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said that that recommended that that uh, school children should be, be wear masks when schools resume. And so some of these districts in Broward County, they want to do it. Up in Jacksonville, they wanted to do it. A few other counties. Uh, but then the governor said, no, that's not allowed. He issued an executive order saying that parents have to be allowed to opt out. Today, the rules were issued uh, by the Department of Health and the Department of Education to, to promulgate that order. And so uh, school districts are in a tough position now trying to decide whether they can require masks or not. How does Governor DeSantis explain his rationale here with cases climbing and climbing and climbing? Well, you know, he all along he's said that Florida is the freedom state and he believes in personal freedom. And so I think the question is, is we can either have a free society or we can have a biomedical security state. And I can tell you, Florida, we're a free state. People are going to be free to choose to make their own decisions about themselves, about their families, about their kids' education, and about... He signed a parental bill of rights law early this year, which uh, says that parents have the right to make educational and health decisions for their children, and he says that includes wearing masks. And so he says this is all about protecting parental rights. At the Board of Education meeting, we heard the chairman there saying that that there's a lot of discussion about local control. You know, should the, the state be taking local control? away from the school boards. He said, well, there's no more local control than the parents themselves, and that's what we're doing. We're giving local control to the parents. And so that's that's the idea here that DeSantis is pushing. Let the, let the people decide whether they should get vaccinated. Let the people decide whether they should wear masks or not. Jasmine, just going forward, this... This is going to keep... You know, the cases are going to keep rising even as, even as, you know, vaccinated people do not end up in the hospitals much or are much safer when they get COVID. But this is continuing to be a problem going forward. You mentioned pockets of low vaccination rates. What are you looking for? What are you paying attention to, you know, as as the city tries to to make sure that spring 2020 never repeats itself? 
You know, there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, uh, it, the, the city announced that it is hiring a lot of community kind of grassroots organizations to go into communities that are very reticent to get vaccinated and um, convince people, you know, talk to them. I mean, you know, it's it's complicated. There's, you know, in the in the black and Latino and immigrant communities, there is a well-documented and well-founded uh, distrust of government initiatives and public health initiatives. And so a lot of this is going into those communities and saying, you know, this is important. Uh, we need you to do this. Um, the other thing that I'm following really closely is you know, all the service industry workers I have spoken to about this mandate are quite happy mm -hmm. about it. You know, they feel like, okay, finally, we're being yeah. protected. At the same time, there is a question of who are we asking to enforce these rules? Um, because definitely in 2020, uh, a lot of people I interviewed who were bartenders and waiters and baristas, um, they uh, had to deal with uh, rather belligerent customers who didn't want to wear a mask. Um, and so the question that I'm hearing a bit is, you know, are we asking people who at times make less than minimum wage uh, to be policing uh, vaccination cards? Um, and de Blasio has said, you know, this is no different than carding someone at a bar. I don't know about that, you know, because it's like you're going to be carding someone to go into a diner. Um, you're going to be carding someone um, to, I don't know, go to the gym. And so who does that responsibility fall on? And I think that is service industry workers have already been through so much uh, during this pandemic. And to give this added responsibility, yeah. you know, that's something to think about. Not that we needed any more evidence to that fact, but more evidence that we just live in a country with wildly, wildly different political climates. And it shows itself on every big story and especially COVID. All right, Greg Allen, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And Jasmine, uh, great to have your reporting too, but stick around and join us for Can't Let It Go, which we will do after a quick break. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Jo shares the unique benefits of therapy. Being in therapy is this very intimate, unique experience to have this other person see you, this other person acknowledge who you are and accept all of it, you know, and like figure out the bits and pieces that you don't want to accept to change that stuff for the better. Even if you're not struggling with something necessarily, but you just want to learn a little bit more about who you are. You want to function a little bit better in your relationships with people or change the way that you approach habits. Doing that together with somebody else can be very powerful and impactful to talk this out and process this together as two humans. To get matched with a counselor and get 10% off your first month, go to BetterHelp.com politics. And we are back. Asma, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. So Jasmine, we are excited to have you in this part of the show. It is Can't Let It Go. We do it every Friday. It is the part of the show where we talk about things from the week. We cannot stop talking about politics or otherwise. I feel like there's been a lot of otherwise this year for everybody. <laughs> that has been the case for me. Uh, Asma, why don't you get us started? Well, I am happy to bring the Can't Let It Go segment of our show back to politics today. Okay. Um, I actually had a different idea in mind, but then just a little while ago, I'm here at the White House today, I went to the president's remarks on 
the economy and COVID. And in I see President Biden walk in a tan suit. No. Yes. Thank you for that reaction. I felt like I was like, scandalous. going to react? Tan suit. So for those of you youngins who do not recall, back <laughs> in, gosh, what year was that, Scott? Was it like 2014? It was it like 2011-ish. Yes. No, it was a second term scandal. It was 2014. Yes, yes, it was 2014. 2014. Former President Barack Obama. He wore a tan suit to an August press conference, and this was in, uh, I believe, remarks about the U.S. military response against the Islamic State in Syria. And he was lambasted for wearing this tan suit. Uh, Republicans said that it made him look too casual. It was too much of a summertime suit for him to be wearing on a very serious (sighs) occasion. Uh, And it became this whole debacle of wearing a tan suit at what uh, many folks felt was just not the opportune moment. Well, then it became like a double debacle <laughs> of how Democrats stupid that criticism that. was. <laughs> but I remember there was this one quote that from a congressman Peter King made where he said that the president looked like he was, quote, on his way to a party at the Hamptons. Though I'd like to say if he was really on his way to a party at the Hamptons, I think he ought to be wearing a seersucker suit, not a tan suit. Well, I mean, I think the question is who wore it better? (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it's just I feel like a not fair comparison in terms of where they are at their stages (laughs) in their lives. Headline, Biden wears tan suit almost exactly seven years after right wing media made Obama wearing one into a scandal. (laughs) Jasmine, what can you not let go of this week? Oh, this week I cannot let go of the the locks dipset versus battle. These two iconic hip hop groups that you know faced off. So versus Jasmine, you mean like one of those webcast virtual concerts, right? Like I'm thinking of that iconic Brandy and Monica one. I remember during I don't know at some point during the pandemic. Um, where there's just like no audience or was this one, did they have an audience for this one? Oh yeah. This one happened at Madison Square Garden. Um, and there was a lot of audience. In fact, there's like this one point where people start, like there's so many people on stage that they have to ask people to get off stage because it's like going to collapse or something. Um, this was (laughs) packed. Yes. Don't scare the white people, dog. Get off yeah. the stage! Off? Everybody off the stage! Don't do it with your play! Get off the stage! Everybody off the stage! Respectfully, get off the stage! Respectfully, I gotta move This back. is like PT. that post-pandemic life, everyone's <laughs> coming together. Yeah. And I guess it's this moment of bliss where it's like, we can finally get out into the world again. Who won? Well, you know what? New York won. Like... For once in the last two years, mm. it felt like New York won. Um, it was just such a celebration of New York hip-hop culture. So I would say technically the locks won, but New York won. Everybody put your right, put your right fist, fist in, the in, the in the air. Everybody right New York up. City. This is about All New York City. All the way in the back. Put them up. Put your right fist up. On the real tip, this is about New York City. We gon' make it. We gon' make it. I'm glad the hot 97 era of hip hop continues to <laughs> continues to have its moment. Yes. All right, so I'll, I'll go last. Asma, you will appreciate it. It's, of course, about the Olympics because that's all. Oh, yes. So, like, I don't know. You and I both love the Olympics, but I feel like I love as, the Olympics. as with, like, a lot of sports this year, I was kind of having a harder time get in, getting into it. There was the pandemic. Yeah. There was, like, this real obvious problem that, like, 
maybe we build up and put too much pressure on and turn into cartoons, our star athletes, you know? Like, I think, like, real mm. questions have been raised and, and athletes have been more blunt about talking about that this year. So then there've been, there've been a lot of, like, n- non-Bob costas things about this Olympics, but mm, mm. I wanted to talk about, like, last night I had, like, the perfect Olympics moment. We were just like, all right, let's see what on, what's on. We're toward the end, so now we kind of get into these sports I'm not as familiar with. And um, the program ended up going to uh, to women's 10-meter diving. So these people are like 30 feet in the air. Did you see this at all? I did not see this, no. So this 14-year-old girl from China, Quan Hong Chan, gets up and just starts dominating. Like, like literally perfect dive. She's getting perfect 10, perfect 10, perfect 10, perfect 10. Two dives in a row. Every single judge gave her a 10. Oh, and wow. it was just like I just got sucked into it. And watching, and like I was like... She, of course, won the gold, you know, like shattered records. But like, I just had this moment of like, oh, this is... <laughs> this is what humans can do, right? I know. Yeah. That that's what I love about the Olympics is it just shows, I mean, not humans because not people like me, right? Like, I feel like I do not have that <laughs> athletic prowess, but it shows you just like what we, collective humans, are capable yeah. of, which I feel like, again, after this year and a half of COVID, it's kind of uplifting to see what we're capable of doing. Yeah. Anyway, if you haven't seen this... Look up the replay because it's just like a total domination of the sport. More embarrassingly, I have climbed onto a high dive and then made my way back through the crowd and not jumped off. (laughs) (laughs) That's the sensible response. (laughs) I might have been booed. (laughs) Jasmine, thanks thanks for hanging out with us. I really enjoyed having you on the podcast today. This was so much fun. Thank you. So that is a wrap for this week. Our executive producer is Shirley Henry. Our editors are Mathani Maturi and Eric McDaniel. Our producers are Barton Girdwood, Elena Moore, and Lexi Shapittle. Thank you to Brandon Carter. Our intern is Maya Cell Spotted Elk. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the White House. And I'm Asma Khalid. I also cover the White House. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.